There are now some 40 million handguns. everyone and welcome back to the GVP cast. This is still Chad, your one and only host here on the podcast. And I'm really excited to finally be to this episode because it's probably the one I've been looking forward to the most since starting this podcast. For those of you who have been following along, this is the third part and final part actually in a three-part series titled How Did We Get Here? I'm parsing through the three seminal Supreme Court cases that got us to where we are today in terms of Second Amendment legislation and law and regulation. The Supreme Court has played a very big role in defining the Second Amendment and its role in our modern society, and so having a conversation about gun violence prevention without talking about these cases kind of does a disservice. So if you have not listened to parts one and two, that may be helpful to do before listening to this episode. However, definitely not required. So if you just want to dive right in here with New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, all the power to you. Let's go on this ride together. Here we go. The final part of the unholy trinity of cases that we're working with now in the legal system, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, commonly shortened to just Bruin. A little bit of background first here on the Bruin case. The law in question in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin had been on the books for quite some time. It was the 1911 Sullivan Act in the state of New York. And assuming that most of you aren't familiar with that law, um, this was a law that required someone who wanted to carry a firearm or a concealed weapon on their person to first apply for it. And there was certain criteria that they had to meet, but there was also a bit of a subjective element to it. And this was kind of unique. New York was one of only seven states that at the time that Bruin was heard had these kind of may issue permitting systems. And when I say may issue, that's where the subjective part comes in. And so this system meant that the people approving or denying the permits, who were usually judges or law enforcement officers, had discretion to determine whether the applicants had shown enough of a reason to justify having the permit. So for instance, there was objective criteria you had to meet, but then if I, as the arbiter of this permit, if I felt that you hadn't shown a justifiable reason for having that concealed weapon, I could deny you in obtaining that permit. And now this was in contrast to 43 other states, which all had and or have shall issue permitting schemes. And now in these systems, it's just that objective criteria that matters. So, so long as an applicant meets certain threshold requirements, whether that is training requirements, whether that is a background check, whether that is an age limit, whether that is you know, a certain application, something objective that everyone can do is what we call a shall issue permitting system. Because instead of being may issue, being the discretion, the shall implies that so long as you meet that objective criteria, you're good to go. So basically, these shall issue permitting schemes take the subjective or discretionary part out of it. Under this may issue permitting scheme, some folks in the state of New York applied for permits to carry, and they were denied for subjective reasons because they could not show enough of a you know justifiable reason for the 
uh, presiding officer or judge or whoever it may have been, and they were therefore denied their permit. So they brought this lawsuit. Uh, so this decision came down 6-3, and I'll let you guess who might have been on which sides. And for those of you not super familiar with the Supreme Court, currently there is a conservative supermajority on the nine-person court where six justices were appointed by Republican presidents and have what most would consider a right-leaning ideology compared to the three justices who were appointed by Democratic presidents who would by most people's standards, be considered as having left-leaning ideology. And now with this, you know, and it's, it's called a supermajority because decisions at the Supreme Court need a majority. So out of nine people, that is five. And so in past iterations of the court, when maybe it's been five conservative justices and four liberal justices, there is the potential there for someone to become a bit of a swing vote. So, you know, while there may normally be five on one side and four on the other of any given issue, sometimes in those makeups of the court, the, the fifth person voting in line with either ideology is sometimes persuadable or is considered perhaps more moderate in their judicial decision making. And so when it's a 5-4 court, every case is a bit of a toss-up because you never know if the right people have appealed to the right justices to get them to decide a certain way. So when we say there's a 6-3 supermajority, we essentially mean that the six conservative justices who are in the majority are going to win the day most of the time. And that's just the reality of where we're at at this point. So if you're listening to this and you're saying Chad is making a lot of conservative arguments or arguments that may appeal to conservatives, there's a reason for that. And I feel very fortunate that during my time in law school, I have been taught a number of doctrinal courses and upper level courses by folks kind of across the ideological spectrum. And I do feel like that has enhanced my ability to formulate arguments that would at least be considerable, that has helped me formulate arguments that those who interpret the Constitution and law more conservatively may at least take a moment to think about. That's where I usually start my analyses. And so if you've been feeling that way, you're not sure why you would have, unless you're also a law student or a lawyer, then that's why. So the decision came down 6-3, and the majority opinion, aka the controlling or winning opinion, was written by Justice Clarence Thomas. You may have heard of him. His opinion starts off pretty, you know, right off the bat, says, this New York regime is unconstitutional. And now if you remember from previous episodes, Heller mainly concerned the ability of an individual to have a firearm in the home for self-defense. And so this case in Bruin, it effectively rendered publicly carrying a constitutional right under the Second Amendment, which hadn't been explicitly recognized before. Some courts had interpreted Heller to also apply to public locations. This is the first time that the Supreme Court said there is a constitutional right under the Second Amendment for you to carry a firearm on your person in public. And you might be wondering, well, how did the justices get there? Really good question. And they got there. Well, there's one quote that I think is pretty illustrative of how they got there. And that is, quote, The constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right, subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. We know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to government officers some special need. And while this is true, it's also misleading. Um, there are plenty of situations in which other constitutional rights are limited in different ways. So, for example, um, you know, one might presume normally individuals have freedom of speech, so you can say whatever you want. But, you know, does that give you the right to yell fire in a public place and cause panic? Or, uh, you know, the, an individual has the freedom and the right to protest or assemble. 
Uh, but sometimes we put conditions on that. So for instance, you know, first obtaining a permit if you want to be in certain locations in order to have a protest or a demonstration or whatever it may be. This quote implies that every other constitutional right is unencumbered in its application and that it is applicable in all scenarios and there are no qualifications ever put on it. And I think that is misleading because, as I said, there are a good number of those. So under Heller, the courts had adopted a sort of test for determining whether a given firearm regulation was constitutional. And in that test that had been developed and used by many courts, there was a bit of what we call interest balancing in there. So in essence, under a test like that, if a given firearm regulation may have seemed to be unconstitutional, if there was a compelling government interest in passing that law, i.e. public safety or reducing violence, that was able to be taken into consideration in the court's decision. So this case threw that out, basically threw out any notion that there should be subjectivity to it on the part of the judges and said that there's a new test. And now this opinion, one of the most frustrating parts of this opinion, there are many, one of the most frustrating parts of this opinion is that it claims that it is getting rid of a two-part test that courts had been using and replacing it with a single step process. But in reality, the test that they outline is two distinct steps. And if you look at quite literally any court that has had to grapple with a firearm regulation in the wake of Bruin, they have determined that this is a two-step process. So thank you, Justice Thomas, for gaslighting us and saying this is a single-step process when it is not. Maybe this is best explained by an example. So for instance, I'm in the state of Minnesota right now, so we'll use Minnesota as an example. Let's say the state of Minnesota passes a firearm regulation, and an individual brings a lawsuit claiming that it is unconstitutional because they have been harmed, whether that be denying a permit, taking away a firearm, whatever it may be. An individual brings a lawsuit saying this is unconstitutional under New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. The court has two steps it has to go through. The first step that the court has to look at is whether the conduct being regulated by the law in question falls inside the, the plain text of the Second Amendment. So if the regulation falls outside of the scope of the Second Amendment, then the analysis can stop there, as presumptively the Second Amendment wouldn't regulate that conduct. And you may be sitting there as some of my, you know, it, over the past few years as I've gotten into this work and I've had this conversation with friends, some folks have said, you know, well, how could, how could anything be outside the scope of the Second Amendment when it has to do with firearms. And you'd be surprised in the ways that there is a fair amount of conduct related to firearms that is not protected by the Second Amendment. So for instance, one of the current scholarly debates is the Second Amendment's people problem. And so when I say the people problem, I mean that the, the amendment itself only guarantees the right to keep and bear arms to the people, but it never really defines who the people are. If we're looking back at the time of ratification, the people in the Second Amendment didn't include women, didn't include non-white people, didn't include currently enslaved individuals, didn't include formerly enslaved individuals, didn't include non-citizens. And so when an individual, let's say uh, an individual who is not a citizen of the United States has a firearm, and for some reason or another, the police are notified, the police find out, whatever it may be, and they confiscate that firearm because there are laws saying that non-citizens cannot have firearms. And they were to bring a suit saying, this is unconstitutional because I have a right under the Second Amendment to a firearm. If the court were to determine that because that person is not a citizen of the United States, that they are not part of the people, 
then their conduct is not covered by the Second Amendment because the Second Amendment only covers the people of the United States. Like I said, the first part of that test is just determining whether the, the plain text of the Second Amendment covers the conduct in question. Now, if the answer to that, we, we talked about what would happen if the answer to that is no. If the answer to that is yes, you then move on to a second step. So, if a court determines that the conduct in question is within the purview of the Second Amendment, the burden then shifts to the government. And when I say burden, I mean the responsibility in a given case at a certain time for who is responsible for proving something versus just defending something. If the conduct is covered by the plain text of the Second Amendment, the government must then prove that the law is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulations. And how do we do that? Justice Thomas says through historical analogs, because historical analogs take the subjectivity out of it, which, as I mentioned earlier, with the ability to consider government interest, there was a bit of subjectivity. And Justice Thomas says, no more. Done with her. We're using historical analogs. And if you think that somehow that is less subjective, you are wrong. The court says we must find historical analogs to contemporary laws in order to justify them. And so how much of an analog does it have to be? The court doesn't say. So that can make it a little challenging. What they also don't clarify, which, oh, goodness, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. She wrote a concurring opinion in this case where she called out a lot of the things I'm going to talk about and then didn't answer them. I'm just trying to imagine being her. Well, it's wild. I'm trying to imagine being her and sitting there and saying, wow, I identify a lot of problems with this test. I'm going to point all of them out, but not help anyone with any of them. I'm just going to say, these are unresolved issues. Good luck. And one of these main issues is that Justice Thomas never clarifies whether the appropriate time to be looking for a historical analog is the 1790s, when the Second Amendment was originally ratified, or the 1860s, which if you listened last week in McDonald versus City of Chicago, when the 14th Amendment was ratified in the 1860s, that's when the Second Amendment became applicable to the states. And so if we're dealing with a state regulation, as we are in this Bruin case, should we be looking at the 1860s? Since in theory, the Second Amendment didn't apply to the states until that time. That might sound confusing. Like, which one are we supposed to choose? The court doesn't say. It also doesn't say... So even... <laughs> the stupid... Not the stupidest part. It gets stupider. One of the wildest parts of this is that the court also doesn't say how close in time an analogous law has to be. So for instance, let's say even if they clarified and said, actually, it is the 1790s, you have to find analogous laws from the 1790s. They do not say how close in time a sufficient historical analog is. So I don't know if I'm a litigator or I work for the government and I'm trying to prove via historical analog that my law is justified in this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulations, I have no guidance on whether that only counts laws written in the same year, whether it is within 10 years, so it could be, you know, every time from like 1780-something to 1805, perhaps. Um, it doesn't say whether it could be 50 years, 100 years, it doesn't say. And that's frustrating. What the court does in Bruin is it cherry-picks some history and determines that there were no sufficient historical analogs to justify New York's law, Therefore, it's unconstitutional. Now, I have some, I have some things I want to say <laughs> about how they cherry-picked their history here. The majority uses a number of sources, and a lot of them, if you read them, <laughs> 
and don't just read the cherry-picked sentence or three words that the court cites. A lot of these sources contradict what the court is trying to say. So for instance, what's really interesting is that the defense in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin relied pretty heavily on English common law when justifying their law with historical analogs. And that's because, if you'll recall, in the course of United States history, the founders came over from Great Britain. And so oftentimes, looking to English common law from the period in which many of these people would have been raised in England can give us a better sense of perhaps how they were thinking about firearms. And so, for example, there was a 1328 statute of Northampton that made it a crime for Englishmen to, quote, ride armed by night nor by day in fairs, markets, nor in the presence of the justices or other ministers, not in no part elsewhere, end quote. Now, Justice Thomas spends a significant amount of time in the Bruin opinion justifying why the statute of Northampton despite it prohibiting people carrying in public, provides absolutely no bearing on whether the Second Amendment would allow someone to carry in public. And now it's unclear whether the majority ultimately finds the statute of Northampton inapplicable because perhaps it predates Romeo and Juliet, or because it was drafted in response to fears of Robin Hood and vigilante knights, or, you know, the Justice Thomas even at one point says that the statute of Northampton, quote, obviously did not contemplate handguns, end quote. Now this is such a rich argument, considering the court's insistence that the Constitution's lack of contemplation of assault rifles at the time of its writing has absolutely no bearing on its applicability to such instruments of mass carnage today. Isn't that interesting? So this 1328 statute of Northampton, entirely inapplicable because it didn't, it didn't even consider handguns. However, the Second Amendment, even though it didn't consider assault rifles, totally covers your right to have an assault rifle. It totally makes sense, right? No, it doesn't. Justice Thomas goes on to use a specific case from 1686 to further demonstrate that the statute of Northampton had become a relic and was no longer enforced at a time that would have impacted the framers' understanding of firearm restrictions. This case is called Sir John Knight's case, and the case concerned an individual who was charged with violating the statute of Northampton for walking around the streets armed with guns and then entering a church during a church service with the guns. Now, the Supreme Court in Bruin writes that Knight was acquitted by a jury because the statute was no longer being enforced. However, Plenty of historians have actually noted that Knight was acquitted because he was armed while wielding government authority. So at that time, in 1686, those in the upper echelons of society, let's say, the nobles and the wealthy primarily, they filled a role of sort of an informal police during this period. In fact, there were laws in place that disallowed those making below a certain income from owning firearms at such an extreme level that 98% of the population in England could not own a firearm. And so if 98% of the population couldn't own a firearm, and the one case we can find in which an individual was acquitted from violating the statute of Northampton is a case in which that person was serving as an informal government officer, and it was widely understood, so widely understood that only 2% of the population could own a firearm to fulfill this very specific role, suddenly that narrative kind of falls apart. 
So this history, when it's not cherry-picked to fit a specific narrative, demonstrates that restricting the ownership and use of firearms would have been pretty widely accepted and would, would have been understood by the framers to be kind of a common aspect of firearm regulation, since again, 98% of the population did not own firearms. And if you're wondering where the sources for that were, the place to start is Patrick J. Charles's book, Historicism, Originalism, and the Constitution, The Use and Abuse of the Past in American Jurisprudence. And then also Priya Satya's article from Slate, which was written in October of 2015, called On Gun Laws, Why We Must Get the History Right. And also Lois Schwarer's book, Gun Culture in Early Modern England are all very illuminating in this aspect. So in Bruin, the majority, the court next addresses significant English laws concerning firearms from later in the 17th century that it perceives as more likely to have influenced the framers' intent in drafting the Second Amendment. Now, according to Justice Thomas, the 1689 English Bill of Rights provided the predecessor for our Second Amendment because the 1689 English Bill of Rights enshrined a right for Protestants and Protestants only to, quote, have arms for their defense, suitable to their conditions, and as allowed by law, end quote. Now, that doesn't sound <laughs> like, <laughs> to me, that doesn't sound like a ringing endorsement of the current interpretation of the Second Amendment, since there are some pretty clear limits in that language of the right given to a very specific subset of the population, only Protestants. The majority goes on to quote Lisa Schwarz's book, Gun Culture in Early Modern England, by cherry-picking a quote to support the idea that Englishmen had never before the ratification of the English Bill of Rights claimed the right of the individual to bear arms. However, immediately following that sentence in Shore's book comes the sentence, the intention of the men who drafted the arms provision and the meaning of its language are at issue today, meaning that historians have not agreed on that fact. In fact, at the end of the chapter, discussing the 1689 Bill of Rights, Shore concludes, and this is all one quote, People may express their outrage over an issue in parliamentary debate. They may print tracts and pamphlets insisting on their viewpoint. They may bring their complaints before law courts, and judges may decide an issue in ways that please the people. However, none of these things creates a constitutional right. The constitutional right of the individual to hold arms at the end of the 18th century had not changed one iota. It remained a right restricted by religion, socioeconomic standing, and law. End of quote. So accordingly, if no change had actually occurred in the understanding of an individual's right to keep and bear arms, then the Englishmen did not proclaim any new right with the passage of the 1689 Bill of Rights. All that new Bill of Rights did was reinforce the status quo, casting serious doubt on the majority's claim that the document somehow cemented into public understanding this idea that individuals have an unfettered right to keep and bear arms. So after looking at English common law, the majority in Bruin turns to the history of the American colonies and the early years of our nation's birth. Now, from the start, Justice Thomas highlights the fact that the respondents in Bruin, the government, pointed to only three known restrictions from the era regarding publicly carrying firearms. But instead of offering lower courts any sort of guidance on how many, if not three, analogs would suffice to show a historical tradition, the majority simply moves on. So the only answer we have when it comes to the number of sources that are needed, whether it can be a singular law, two laws, three laws, it seems to me that three isn't sufficient, but would four be sufficient? Do I need six? Do I need 10? Do I need 40? I wish I knew. 
the court first analyzes two colonial laws it perceives as being substantially identical um, from the late 1600s in both Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Now, the Massachusetts law, promulgated in 1692, begins by stating that the law is directed towards any affrayers, rioters, disturbers, or breakers of the peace who go armed defensively before any justices or ministers doing their office or who simply go elsewhere by night or by day. The law makes it a criminal offense to go armed in fear or affray of their majesty's liege people, and such others as shall utter any menaces or threatening speeches. And the text from the New Hampshire law is essentially the same. Now, the Brewer majority contends that the respondents and the dissenting justices all somehow misunderstand these two colonial laws. Justice Thomas claims that those laws did nothing more than, quote, codify the existing common law offense of bearing arms to terrorize people, end of quote as understood within the statute of Northampton, which Justice Thomas did spend a significant... <laughs> Under this guise, the majority would have you believe that the statute of Northampton was a relic of some bygone era of the 17th century, and yet, and yet, was somehow also the foundational basis for colonial American firearm laws. And so, let me back up here for a second. So, common law, as opposed to... I suppose, regular law or statutory law. Common law is an area of law that is developed over years of courts making decisions as opposed to any sort of elected body passing a law on a given topic. And so when something is a common law offense, it means there's not a law on the books saying that that is illegal. But in the common tradition of courts in that given jurisdiction, there may be a common law offense for whatever you are charged with, in which case you can still be found liable under the law for that. And so in this, in saying this, Justice Thomas is saying that there existed such a deeply rooted common law tradition of not bringing arms to terrorize people. And this was first understood by the statute of Northampton. Then they are saying that it has been so long since the statute of Northampton that this, this, this criminal offense of bearing arms to terrify people started way back in a bygone era, so long ago that common law, years of cases and decisions have been built up to support this idea. And yet, they also say that this statute is the foundational basis for colonial American firearm laws. Self-contradictions aside, the statute of Northampton makes no such restrictions on its firearm prohibitions. The text of the statute is not focused on terrorizing or instilling fear in the general public as a result of bearing a firearm. Instead, the statute explicitly bans riding armed by day nor by night in fairs, markets, nor in the presence of the justices or other ministers, nor in no part elsewhere. Crucially lacking from the sentence is any indication that the firearm bearers in discretion would only amount to a criminal offense if they terrorized people in public. The statute of Northampton places no qualifying criteria on circumstances in which carrying an arm would be an offense. It simply prohibits them from being carried in known public gathering places. Now, a plain text reading of this statute, and when I say plain text, I mean quite literally just like reading the words for what they mean. A plain text reading of the statute does not yield the conclusion that the majority claims it does. Instead, the, the statute of Northampton had an even greater ban on the public carrying a firearm than, than the colonial laws did. And since the common law tradition that Justice Thomas references is even broader than the colonial laws, the notion that others are misunderstanding early American regulations by believing that they impose general bans on public carrying loses essentially all of its merit and weight. So that was a lot, and that was the majority opinion in 
Bruin. Now, there were some concurring opinions. I mentioned Justice Barrett's already. Justice Alito also wrote a concurring opinion. It's a lot of travel. What I really want to talk about here is Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Roberts also wrote a concurrence. And this is, I think, the most illustrative of where the court may be going when it hears cases like Rahimi in the upcoming term. In their concurrence, Kavanaugh and Roberts essentially beg the court to maintain the sensitive places doctrine, which is the idea that you can't bring guns to sensitive places like government buildings, polling places, schools, etc. And that the presumably constitutional prohibitions mentioned in Heller, such as felon prohibitors or inhibitors on the ability of those with mental illness to have guns, Kavanaugh and Roberts are essentially saying, we don't want to cast doubt on those notions. Even though they signed on to this insane majority opinion, they write a concurring opinion just to clarify that they think those things should still be intact. Now, um, okay. A dissenting opinion written by Justice Stephen Breyer. Oh, I love him. It's a pretty good dissent. Um, it's very Justice Breyer-y, and by that I mean Justice Breyer loves using uh, kind of historical reasoning in his decision-making. So in his dissenting opinion, Justice Breyer notes the importance of that kind of government interest that the majority explicitly did away with. And Justice Breyer writes that New York's legislature considered the empirical evidence about gun violence and adopted a reasonable licensing law to regulate the concealed carriage of handguns in order to keep the people of New York safe. And he believes that should be enough. So he essentially thinks we should have maintained some level of this interest balancing that was in play before Bruin. Now, Justice Breyer also thinks that the majority decision established a new framework for courts to use in Second Amendment cases that would harm states' ability to regulate guns, because very obviously it will. If the only regulations that could survive constitutional muster are those that have more than three historical analogs from the 1790s, you're pretty limited. If you're a state government, you're pretty limited. Or even the federal government, if you're any government, you're a lawmaker, you're pretty limited in the types of laws that you can pass within that framework. So that was Bruin. I know I spent a lot of time nitpicking some of the language in the majority. There's more nitpicking that can be done. Those are just some of the examples that I thought were most relevant, or some of the examples that even I just kind of first noticed. The majority opinion is full of cherry-picked history and and it is incredibly misguided. And I think it was so misguided that, you know, while it had been a number of years in between McDonald and Bruin, so the Supreme Court had not heard a significant firearms case in a long time. The Supreme Court had not heard a significant firearms case in quite a long time. And then they heard Bruin, and now already, this November, they're hearing arguments in another firearm case. And it's because the test that they laid out in Bruin is so unworkable that all the circuit courts, the courts that are at the level federally, below the Supreme Court, none of them can agree on what sorts of statutes are constitutional or unconstitutional under Bruin. So they're being forced to take up these cases, and it is yet to be seen what the solution is. Do they refine the Bruin test? Do they just kind of uphold Heller's general prohibitions on felons and the mentally ill? And do they consider domestic abusers to be felons in this context? It's all yet to be seen. That was a lot of information. It's a lot to digest. So please feel free to like re-listen to that or never listen to that again. Um, essentially, the main takeaways are that we now have a new test for how we determine whether a firearm regulation is constitutionally permissible. It's wild. 
And so because this decision is relatively recent, we don't have a lot of hindsight when analyzing its holding. And so this episode may prove to be wildly irrelevant in a few years, or even just a year, depending how the Supreme Court determines Rahimi and what tests they lay out there. But for now, at least, for the next little bit, until we get a decision in Rahimi, this is what litigators are working with. And it's getting pretty messy in the courts. And if you're wondering how messy, um, go check out Professor Jake Charles on Twitter. He is a professor at Pepperdine Law, and he's doing a really fantastic job of documenting essentially every case relating to firearms since Bruin and how they are turning out, essentially. How, when they apply the Bruin test, are, thing, are, are similar laws addressing the same issues being found constitutional or unconstitutional? And it's, his research is really fascinating in this sense because you can see how Justice Thomas's whole point in using this test is he was like, oh, this will be much more consistent. It takes up the subjectivity. And yet we're seeing that judges in different courts are using this test and reaching diametrically opposed conclusions. So Justice Thomas's whole purpose in the majority opinion in Bruin is moot. It didn't even solve the problem he pretended it was solving, and it hasn't even been used objectively by the courts. I just don't get it. So now that we've taken this journey together, where we've gone through the currently existing three seminal Supreme Court cases on the Second Amendment and firearms, we can now address some of these bigger questions facing the United States relating to gun violence, but we can address them through the law. I didn't want to dive into substantive conversations about how we can move forward without first making sure that listeners have the opportunity to learn where we've been, henceforth how we got here. So be sure to follow along for more as the GVP cast continues to develop. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the GVP cast, and I am really looking forward to bringing you some new episodes in the future featuring some guest speakers. So thank you so much for following along with this three-part journey. I hope it was informative or at least a little bit helpful. If not, I apologize. But I hope you all have a great weekend, and I look forward to chatting again soon about all things gun violence prevention.